As we hold this conversation, it is one minute after 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month. And good morning, Terry. Good morning, David. And I and I feel incredible sadness. I've been I've been spent the weekend preparing to speak with you and reading in Flanders Fields. Makes me so incredibly sad. But I was wondering if you could tell me why this poem has survived and why it works. Well, that's an excellent question, Terry, of course. Um, but to just to, 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 to reflect also on what you've just said, of course, one cannot help but feel the, the weight of an enormous sadness um, uh, on, on this day at this time uh, as we remember, and of course, remember itself is a little bit of a, a misnomer, isn't it? Because very few people alive today could actually remember um, what was happening in those horrible years. Um, but uh, certain things from those years have survived to remind us, I guess most of us, I don't know about you, but I, it, I, it, most of us, I don't think, would be even able to imagine the horror of those dreadful, dreadful trenches and the mud and the rats and the decaying corpses. and the. Uh, so to remember that young people uh, were put through that and survived, and even those who survived, survived scarred in such ways that uh, could, you know, and back in those days they didn't, we didn't have the term um, post-traumatic syndrome, but uh, we talked about the, in, the soldiers who had been shell-shocked. Mm-hmm. We'll come to that. But out of that came this poem that has gone on. Now, when you asked me to read it, I, I had some mixed feelings, to tell you the truth. Uh, and, I, and so I had to go back and read it a few times and then read about how it came to be. And then I decided, oh, yes, oh, yes, I, I, I do want to uh, read the poem. But before doing that, I want to maybe just set up a little bit of how, how it came to be and, and this curious and interesting man named John McRae. Who, who wrote the poem? So uh, I don't know about you, but you know, because I, I know you—you you spent your childhood in uh, in, in in the United States. Um, so when you first heard this poem, do you remember when you first heard it? No. No. Because here, uh, certainly, and I've asked a few of my you know Canadian friends and colleagues, and uh, we heard it first in school, and I think I probably wasn't much more than six or seven when I first heard it, uh, and of course, as a children of that age, very curious about what this poppy was that people were pinning on their, their lapels and so on, and, um, uh, and so we, we certainly, you know, <laughs> have lived our entire lives uh, knowing about this poem, and maybe most of us even remembering the first line, but anyway first line, in Flanders fields, the poppies blow. Well, there's an interesting thing right off the bat. Apparently, John McRae wrote 
two versions of that first line. One was that the poppies blow, and the other was that the poppies grow. And um, he, he wrote the poem out in his own handwriting several, several times, and, uh, and, in the, and, and he alternated between the two, but we'll come back to that. Flanders Fields. Notice the plural. There's no single place called Flanders Field, but the fields of a part of the European geography known as Flanders, which was in the southern part of Belgium, and it stretched right across into the northern part of France. And um, that part of Europe had seen so many battles over more than a hundred years, certainly going back to the Napoleonic Wars. And one of the curious results of that, Terry, it found it, I didn't know this, but what I did some reading, one of the curious results of that was that an enormous amount of gunpowder had got deposited across the fields of Flanders. Now, when uh, one, of the, one of the constituents of gunpowder, when it's leached out, is a kind of lime. And so this enormous amount of gunpowder across many of the fields of Flanders resulted in a, in a raising of the level of lime in the, in the surface soil. And as a result, only a few plants could grow there. And one of those plants happened to be, what would you suppose? Oh, I can guess, David. Yeah. The poppy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes known as the red poppy, the corn poppy. But it certainly was the case. Now, whether John McRae knew about this curious history or not, we'll never know. But, of course, there's no doubt that as she sat on that morning and read, wrote his poem, he was struck by the bright red flowers that were growing over the graves of the soldiers, and in this particular case, the, the grave of a friend of his who had been buried the previous night. So, at the end of the war, 1918, an American professor named Moina Michael was inspired by McCrae's poem, and she got the idea to wear a poppy year-round to honor the soldiers who had died in the war. She also wrote a poem in response that she called We Shall Keep the Faith. And she, she actually made some silk poppies, and she passed them around to some of her friends, and she started a campaign with the, uh, with the American Legion to establish the poppy as, a, a, as a, an official remembrance mm-hmm. of the uh, people who had died in the war. And uh, that same year, well, actually it was 1920, I think, uh, a French um, fundraiser, lecturer named Madame Guérin um, uh, traveled to, uh, to the States, and she attended um, a meeting of the American Legion where uh, uh, Mona Michael was talking, and she immediately became a supporter of the campaign, and she, uh, she took the idea back to France, uh, and started to raise money uh, by selling poppies, raise money for, for the uh, orphans of the war. And um, then she sent poppies to London, 
and the practice began to spread throughout the British Empire. And uh, that same year, Madame Guerin came to Canada, and she met with, uh, with representatives of the Great War Veterans Association of Canada, which later became the Royal Canadian Legion. And the uh, Legion adopted the poppy as its national flower of remembrance on the, in the 5th of July, 1921. And from that time, Canadian War veterans actually made the lapel poppies that many of us are wearing in our lapels today. So I thought your listeners and even you might be interested in knowing. That's how, when we look at these poppies that everyone's wearing today, uh, that's how, that's the story of, of, of how they came to be associated. It's a direct cause and effect of this, of this poem. Yeah. Wow. And, wow, written on, at the height of unbearable yeah. circumstances, unbearable. Well, let, let, let's come to that. I wonder, you know, I don't know, if, if, do we have time? I'd like to, I wonder if I could read you something that I, <laughs> that I um, took out of the Canadian Encyclopedia. Sure. The, um, the, 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 uh, when John McRae wrote the poem, he was, um, uh, he, he was a, a medical officer with a... Um, First uh, Brigade Canadian Field Artillery, and they were uh, at the time engaged in something called the Second Battle of Ypres. And um, this is what uh, the Canadian uh, Encyclopedia has to say about that. The Second Battle of Ypres was fought um, uh, from the 22nd of April to 25th of May 1915. It was the first major battle fought by Canadian troops in the Great War. The battle took place on the Ypres salient on the Western Front in Belgium, outside the city of Ypres. The untested Canadians distinguished themselves as a determined fighting force resisting the horror of the first large-scale poison gas attack in modern history. Canadian troops held a strategically critical section of the front line until reinforcements could be brought up. More than 6,500 Canadians were killed, wounded, or captured the Second Battle of Ypres. The men of the 1st Canadian Division, farmers, lawyers, factory workers, business owners, teachers, and doctors, were among the first Canadians to volunteer for service in the war. More than 31,000 men traveled to England as part of the Canadian Expeditionary Force in October 1914, and after a training period in England, they arrived in France in February 1915. By this time, the fighting on the Western Front had stabilized into a war of attrition between the great armies of Germany on one side and France, Britain, and its empire on the other, dug into a vast system of opposing trenches running from the North Sea to Switzerland. In April 1915, after a short taste of trench life in a relatively quiet sector of the Front, the 1st Canadian Division was ordered into the Ypres salient a bulge in the front lines on the Flanders Plain, east of the ancient Belgian city of Ypres. The Allies wanted to protect Ypres partly because it offered rail and road links to ports on the coast, and the Allies were determined to keep those out of German hands. Defending the Belgian people was also a powerful justification for Britain's role in the war, and abandoning Ypres 
the last major Belgian center unoccupied by German forces would have signaled an important German victory. The salient was a dangerous place for Allied defenders. It was surrounded on three sides by enemy soldiers and artillery. The trench works the Canadians moved into in April were also woefully inadequate. Shallow, poorly constructed, littered with human excrement, pools of water, and the unburied corpses of soldiers killed in previous fighting. Chemical weapons had been outlawed by international treaties before then, but in the spring of 1915, Germany decided to test a new weapon, chlorine gas, on the Ypres salient. On the 22nd of April 1915, the Germans released more than 160 tons of gas from thousands of canisters arranged along German lines. The Canadians and the French-Algerian troops manning the trenches to their left watched as a mysterious yellow-green cloud appeared first over no man's land between the opposing armies and then drifted with the wind southward over the Allied lines. The heaviest part of the gas cloud hit the Algerians, the chlorine burning their throats and causing their lungs to fill with foam and mucus, effectively drowning the men in their own fluids. The Canadians watched in shock and horror as the suffocating Algerians broke from their lines, many fleeing toward them in panic, leaving a six-kilometer hole in the front lines of the Canadians' left flank. On the 24th of April, 1915, a second gas attack hit the Canadians head-on. None of the troops carried gas masks at this point in the war. Some Canadians fled. Many sought refuge by lying face down in the crevices of their trenches where the green, hazy gas cloud, heavier than air, found and killed them. But many others survived by holding urine-soaked cloths and handkerchiefs over their mouths and noses after being instructed to do so by medical officers who had identified the gas as chlorine. Among those deeply affected by the horror of the fighting was Lieutenant Colonel the Canadian Army Medical Corps officer who wrote his famous poem, In the Midst of the Battle. McRae's lungs were damaged by gas during the battle, making his asthma worse, and almost certainly contributed to his death a few years later from complications of pneumonia and meningitis. That's uh, the excerpt from the Canadian Encyclopedia. McRae wrote a letter to his mother in which he said, quote, For 17 days and 17 nights, none of us have had our clothes off, nor our boots, even except occasionally. In all that time while I was awake, gunfire and rifle fire never ceased for 60 seconds. And behind it all was the constant background of the sights of the dead, the wounded, the maimed, and a terrible anxiety lest the line should give way, end of quote. Well, on May the 2nd, 1915, a close friend of John McRae's, a, a young um, man, was killed by a German shell. And uh, killed by a German shell is just a couple of words which describes how somebody died, but it doesn't give you much of the picture, does it? No. Because, in fact, while well, the remainder of his friend were, in fact, just that, some 
gory remains, which were wrapped in a blanket, and that night buried at a military cemetery near that site that had been established. Uh, and of course, because of security, the the funeral, uh, the, the the burial had to be at night, in the complete dark. And there wasn't a chaplain around, but McCrae um, actually knew part of the order, the Church of England's order of the burials of the dead, which he which he recited um, uh, in farewell to to his young friend. Well, the next day. <coughs> uh, a sergeant major with the unit, by the name of Cyril Allenson, was delivering mail. And as he approached the uh, medical station where McRae worked, um, which was just a few hundred yards from the cemetery, he saw McRae sitting in the back of an ambulance. And he watched him as he, he, he was writing on a single sheet of paper. And later, Allenson uh, remarked, quote, his face was very tired, but calm as he wrote. He looked around from time to time, his eyes straying to the young man Helmer's grave. Well, after a few minutes, McRae stopped writing, and he noticed Allison, and he, and he nodded to him, and he took his mail, and he handed him the sheet of paper he'd been writing on. Well, Allenson was obviously very moved, and later he wrote, Quote, the poem was an exact description of the scene in front of us both. McRae used the word blow in that first line because the poppies actually were being blown that morning by a gentle east wind. It never occurred to me at that time that it would ever be published. It seemed to me just an exact description of the scene. Well, then there are, there are a number of different stories about what happened next, but uh, it seems that McCrae didn't think very much of the poem, and in fact, one of the stories said that he, he crumpled up the page and he threw it away. And uh, some other members of this, his unit uh, retrieved it from there and uh, persuaded him to, to, to uh, uh, you know... Keep it. Keep it and do better by it, and... Um, the following year, it was published in, uh, in in England in the of all things in the uh, uh, magazine in Punch magazine. So that's how the poem came to be written. And then, not quite two years later, McCrae died uh, on duty in France um, from complications of pneumonia and meningitis. And as I think I mentioned earlier, almost certainly. Uh, uh, a factor was the damage to his lungs from the from the chlorine gas uh, um, at this battle in Ypres, and he's buried in Wimereau, uh, north of Boulogne, and um, that's the man who wrote the poem that's gone on to become so famous that many people will be looking at today. And perhaps, uh, Terry, the thing that goes maybe to to will go to your heart the way it goes to mine. What I've just described, that horror, the absolute nightmarish horror, this isn't just a poem that the man wrote. Okay. It's a very particular form of poetry. It's called a rondo, and it was invented in medieval times. It was a favorite with civilized uh, troubadours and, uh, in, in the 13th and 14th centuries. And it's a form. It's a form which it makes very particular demands. McRae wasn't just a dabbling 
guy kind of you know poetry. The rondo requires fifteen lines, three stanzas. The first stanza has five lines. The second stanza has four lines. The third stanza has six lines. You're only allowed to have two rhymes. It's a poem. So, in in the in the in the in this gore of primitive barbaric murder. This man has a grasp of civilization from centuries before, ah. which informs his invention of this poem. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields.